This afternoon, then, we'll look at our confession about the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find that in Lord's Day 18 in our Heidelberg Catechism, page 531 in your Book of Praise. And there in question 46, the Confessing Church asks, What do you confess when you say, He ascended into heaven? That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he has promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other? If his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? Not at all. For his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on, and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counterpledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Let's sing after the sermon from hymn 41. Hymn 41, 1, 2, and 3. Christ above all glory, seated. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how much, how far have you traveled? Sometimes in today's day and age, there seems to be no limit where mankind can go. We've been to the moon. Mars is in sight. We've traveled to ocean depths. Even as individuals, most of us can zip around the world in a way that would flabbergast someone from a hundred years ago. But there's one place that we cannot go no matter how advanced we might get technologically. Heaven. The Lord Jesus says in John 3, No one can ascend into heaven except the one who has first come down, descended. We can never find the way to heaven, to God, on our own. God must first come to us. But imagine, for instance, a sort of thought experiment. Let's say scientists decided this was going to be their project. They were going to look for heaven. I don't think they would. Let's say they did. Maybe they did find ways to peer into the farthest reaches of space, even enter other dimensions. They would never find heaven, though. There's, first of all, the problem of looking for something heavenly with only earthly 
tools. You'll never discover radio waves if all you have is a stethoscope. But even more, it's not simply a matter of of science. Heaven is simply off limits for us as sinners. Beyond our grasp, beyond our sight. In the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, we read about the Tower of Babel. We read that people build that tower for three reasons. So they will stick together, united, united against God. So their name is exalted rather than the name of God. And also so that they can reach up into heaven or attempt to do that and set themselves up as gods. Genesis 11 is quite clear. God does not permit any of this. He destroys man's attempt to reach up, to find a way into heaven on his own. Now once we see that according to the word of scripture, and also our own experience, that there is no way that sinful man can ever enter heaven, that the door is shut and locked by God himself, then the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes quite a marvel. It tells us that the cross of Jesus Christ, though it was a man crucified, though it looks like failure at first, is far greater than we could ever imagine. The cross of Christ means resurrection. For Christ, also for us, Easter proclaims that. It also means ascension. Heaven opened up for Christ and for us. There was that flaming sword that flashed back and forth at paradise, Eden. But one has died and destroyed the power of death. The ascension of Christ, I think you'll agree with me, is often something neglected. We focus on Christmas, we focus a fair bit on Easter, but certainly by the time Ascension and Pentecost come around, we're often not very interested anymore. Now why is that? Let me give just two reasons, I'm sure there's more, but two reasons why Ascension is not always on our radar. First of all, because our faith is not always rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. If that's what your faith is, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are clinging to him in faith, then of course, where he goes, what he does, all of that is vital, critical, because you are grasping him. But for instance, if Christmas is not so much already about the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's just about presence or even some general talk about the love of God, but not about the Savior that you need to hold on to for dear life, then by the time the ascension of Christ comes around, well, all that warm, sentimental Christmas fuzzies, those are gone. Secondly, the ascension is not always central because we can be plain and simple to earthly. The ascension means we need to look up in a way the world around us does not. 
It means heavenly glory, heavenly blessings. It means seeking heavenly things. But often, we too couldn't care. We live like those around us. We're mired in the muck of the world when our head for a change should be in the clouds. I've summarized our confession like this then. Christ ascends into heaven for us in victory. And we'll see two things, that he ministers to us, and secondly, that he guarantees a place for us. Now, in many ways, God confirms to us the riches of the cross of Jesus Christ. That what does appear to be failure is the great act of God. The resurrection certainly does that. It demonstrates that the Lord Jesus Christ, forsaken by God there on Good Friday, truly does endure the wrath of God and drink the cup of that wrath down to its very dregs. It is finished. Otherwise, of course, he could have not have been raised from the dead in glory. In a similar way, too, the ascension also proclaims to us the glory of Christ's finished work. And the ascension, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ is received by the Father into heaven. He doesn't have to break into it. The door is wide open. He came from the bosom of the Father, he tells us. And now by virtue of his, his work, his great act of obedience, he is allowed to return to it. Clearly there is not a single speck of sin. Think the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins completely upon himself. If he has ascended now into heaven, there is not a single speck of sin on him. Not a single thing still outstanding. He ascends then into the outstretched arms of his heavenly father. Who welcomes him home again as his beloved and obedient son. Now that's amazing enough. But the ascension is also a very special kind of homecoming. Because it's also a victory parade. That's what we have in Psalm 24. That psalm appears to be composed when David brings the ark into Jerusalem. It's a psalm of prophecy too, though. Perhaps in ways that David did not realize about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might know, for instance, the early church, if there was a song that they were going to sing on Ascension Day, it was this one, Psalm 24. Now perhaps some of you remember victory parades, military parades. Maybe some of you can remember Canadians coming into your hometown in Holland, riding on tanks, handing out chocolate to kids, to you. A great victory, of course, deserves, needs to be celebrated, proclaimed. Well, there are also victory parades like that in the ancient world. Also in Israel, Psalm 24 is a song for such a victory parade. But yet there's a few striking things about this celebration. 
First of all, in Psalm 24, David asks, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? That means that this victory parade is not going to end up at a king's palace. It's going to end up at the hill of the Lord, the the temple. A religious war, if we can redeem that term. A religious war has been won and fought. That's what Psalm 24 is about. That also means that there are standards for those that would enjoy the blessings of this victory. Who may ascend with us? Only those with clean hands and a pure heart. No other victory parade in the ancient world had a set of standards for the spectators. But this is the victory of the mighty and holy God. And therefore, if we are to enjoy it, we need to, we must examine ourselves. Secondly, David speaks to the gates. That's not striking in itself. The earthly king, as he would come into his capital, into a fortress, those gates, there would be his uh, special forces often, the elite guard, would be in those gates, and there would often be actually a kind of exchange between the gates and the the king that was returning. But David calls these gates ancient ones, even eternal gates. Jerusalem, at David's time, may actually be a very old city. It could be 2,000 years old even at this time. But that is certainly still not an eternity What's happened is that David here, through the power of the Spirit, has superimposed upon Jerusalem and the return of the ark also a heavenly reality. God, in fact, is coming in to His heavenly dwelling. The gates of heaven, too, need to greet the new king and those then in the gates. The cherubim and the seraphim, the four living creatures, all the spiritual host of heaven, they too need to be lifted up and to acclaim this king. And they ask, who is this king of glory? The procession then answers back, the Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. That's the third striking thing about Psalm 24. David is not the king. Where's David? He's dancing before the ark. Like one of the girls, one of the women. God himself is the warrior king. The ark is entering Jerusalem. A divine victory is being celebrated. But there's much more here. David, even if he does not see it himself completely... He's prophesying about something much greater. That God himself will enter the highest of heavens after a great victory in glory. And that's what the ascension is all about. That's why the early church sang this psalm on ascension day. The ascension of Christ is not Christ 
just sort of leaving the earth as if he's tired too of this sinful, miserable world and wants to just get rid of us? Not at all. He is returning to his capital. He is entering heaven as the victor and the champion with nothing less than a divine victory under his belt. A divine victory. Not over the Philistines, over sin, over Satan, and even death. Christ then ascends to be enthroned, to take his place as the new king. Also as priest, as prophet, for the sake of his people. So that he might share to them the wealth of his victory. The ascension then means Christ is crowned king. He will now share the wealth that he has as a king, the kingdom of God. He will establish his kingdom in human hearts. Rule us rebellious sinners by his word and spirit. We confess in the catechism that in respect to his divinity, majesty, grace and spirit, that he is never absent from us. That's what the ascension of Christ means. The King of kings and Lord of lords. We know him, his grace, his power, personally. He guards us, he protects us. He destroys the works of the devil. He frees sinners to know the kingdom of God. That place where life again flourishes. The ascension means that Christ will continue his work as a prophet. He's also a king who will teach so that the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. David sings in Psalm 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. That's his joy, his delight to speak about God. To have the lives of others filled with the knowledge of God. That too was a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ as a king pours out his spirit. That prophetic spirit. To lead his people to know the Lord and to know God's ways. The church upon whom the spirit comes will understand the work and the mission of Christ Better even than those disciples following him physically for three years. And he also comes into heaven as our high priest. He enters the divine holy of holies, not with the blood of animals, as the high priest did in the Old Testament, with his own blood, his own perfect sacrifice. Finally, everything that each day in the Old Testament look forward to. The Day of Atonement in particular. A day has come that God and sinners would be reconciled. And the Catechism in particular focuses on this aspect when it talks about Christ being our advocate before the Father. Advocate, that's a priestly task. There is a devil who never ceases to accuse us. That's disturbing to think when you begin to realize how greatly we sin. 
He's Satan. Satan is not a, a personal name. Satan is actually a legal term. The accuser, the prosecuting attorney, he accused Job before God. In Zechariah 3, 2, he accuses Joshua, the high priest. Would you like to defend yourself against the devil's accusations? Would you like to make a defense? Why God should continue to be patient with you day after day? Why God should continue to be good to you? Why He should listen to your prayers? Why He shouldn't banish you from His presence forever? Sometimes in court, the accused do take the stand to defend themselves. They often end up incriminating themselves. But we have an advocate in heaven, says the Apostle John. Jesus is our sure defense. His case for us, someone once said, never has any holes in it, except for the holes in his wrists, in his ankles, his side. We don't have to imagine that there is constantly a debate in heaven that Christ again and again has to plead our defense. No, He's there in heaven at the right hand of the Heavenly Father with His finished work where He has paid for our sins. And therefore there's not a single moment when the Father's work in our lives is not mediated first of all through Him. So the ascension must be our joy. When we see Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, the ascension means Christ's work fulfilled also in this area, taken to the next level, shared and ministered to us throughout the world. Secondly, the ascension is also a guarantee. That's our second point. Now, do you know what the Lord Jesus said when he entered heaven? I do. I sort of do. In Hebrews, we are directed to the prophecy of Isaiah. And the inspired author of Hebrews says that words that Isaiah spoke were not just about him, but ultimately too about the Lord Jesus Christ. What are those words that Isaiah spoke? Here I am and the children you have given me. Those words were on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were his return to heaven. Here I am and the children you have given me. The author of Hebrews, in so many ways, wants us to realize the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's dealing with people who, just like us, have temptations to look to other things. Who think God can be found in other ways. Who think spirituality is a lot funner if it would be about angels and all sorts of other things. Instead, he says, look at what you have in Jesus Christ. You have a Savior who can sympathize with your weaknesses. You have a Savior who's lived here on this earth, in this fallen world. 
you have a Savior who is closer to you than you know. Who even when he went into heaven, spoke of you. Here I am, and the children you have given me. The earth may be filled with unbelief and evil, but when Christ ascends into heaven, he presents himself to the Father, and also us who believe in him. Father, there will be a people who will know you, who will praise you. On several occasions, the Apostle Paul talks about how in Christ, we too are raised and seated in the heavenly places. The Christ ascended into heaven as our representative. That our flesh is in heaven and we can take confidence in that. The dust of the earth today, at this moment, is on the throne in high. And we then who are dust may find confidence. God seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms, we read in Ephesians 2. That means that our spot, our place in heaven, is secure, is guaranteed. Nothing can touch us, not even the devil. Paul in Ephesians will talk about how the devil is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But he says, we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The devil's arm can only reach so far, but not high up into heaven. We have more than just the hope of heaven. We have a guarantee of it. It's one thing to have even a ticket for an event, for something. It's yet another thing to have someone on the inside who's holding your seat, who perhaps has put your coat on it. That's what we have, though, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's believe that. That our lives are hidden in heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's another aspect, says our catechism. We not only have our flesh in heaven, we also receive from heaven the Spirit of God. The Spirit is proof that Christ has ascended. Pentecost is proof of ascension. If Christ had not ascended into heaven, the most holy place, if His blood had not been perfect, the Spirit would never have been poured out. Look at the Spirit's work in your life. Not speaking in tongues, exotic miracles, or that sort of thing. But look at the Spirit's work in your life. In terms of godliness and obedience. In terms of being like Christ. It's His Spirit, after all. The fact that the Spirit is at work in you. That you begin to seek more than what this world offers. You can take comfort from that. But yes, the Spirit, the heavenly Spirit that I have, is a guarantee that I will have a place in heaven with my Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if we do not have that thirst for heaven or for heavenly things, we should be checking our spiritual pulse. Maybe we're 
decent and nice people. But if we don't yearn for, for heaven and for its glory too, to be able to praise, to worship God fully, completely, to be able to walk with Him perfectly. If we don't have that desire, something is wrong in our hearts as Christians. Grace in the heart, says a minister from another generation, is an ascensive power. He meant that we are to ascend as well. Our gaze needs to be lifted up. And that's the promise of Christ's ascension. Our flesh is already in heavenly glory. That's what we will enjoy one day. God and human beings again will live together in intimate fellowship. You know, in Scripture, there's a beautiful intertwining of two homes. First of all, the home that we need, that God promises to us as sinners. Then also, maybe surprisingly, there's talk in Scripture about the home of God. First of all, we are promised a home in God and with God. And in the Old Testament, God made that very clear. This is part of salvation. The land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey. God desires to provide a home, a place for His people. But sometimes, even in the same chapter, like John chapter 14, we also read about the home of God. That God, too, desires a home. Anyone who loves me, they will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them, says the Lord Jesus in John fourteen twenty four. And those two homes, they belong together. When we make our home in God, then God also makes His home in us. When God makes His home in us, then we finally find the home that we yearn for as well. And that's what the ascension to the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. Bringing us to God so that one day God will live with us. Behold, the dwelling of God now is with among men, we read in Revelation 21. The Lord Jesus Christ goes to prepare a place for us, a home for us. And He sends out His Spirit now that we might look to it, that we might walk towards it in obedience in His Spirit. No human being could ever enter heaven in their own strength. They would not even be able to find the door. But where Christ has gone, we will go as well. Amen.